Hello and welcome to this very special episode of the Real Talks podcast with Philly McMahon. The conversation I'm about to share with you was recorded in front of a live audience recently in the Sugar Club on Neeson Street as part of the first Fortnite Festival. An incredible warrior on the field and a multiple All-Ireland winner, Philly has also become a powerful and respected advocate for Ballymun, Dublin and the GAA in general. The insight, honesty and power of this conversation has made it one that I will never forget as we discussed addiction, identity, giving back, family and the power of love. Before we start, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or whatever platform you get your podcasts on. All you have to do is search for Real Talks, subscribe and you won't miss out on any future episodes. My name is Alan O'Mara and you're listening to episode 19 of the Real Talks podcast with Dublin's Philly McMahon. To kick off, Philly, I was going to act, I was just going to start with the book. Um, it's obviously, I read, it, I read it before Christmas away in my holidays, so you, you came to Miami with me. Um, and I had it out again over the last couple of days, catching up. But it, I suppose, what's the last couple of months been like for you? I suppose, from my own perspective, just looking in, I can't really remember another book that kind of received such praise, such warm welcome from your own story. And what's, what's that been like over the last couple of months? Because I'd say you've had a chance now to maybe deflate a little bit after the kind of the running, the running tour. Yeah, I suppose it's been very re- rewarding. Um, people coming up to you and, and saying how it's helped them, how it's helped their family members. A um, couple of stories, done a book signing in O'Connell Street and you had two or 300 people there and you're kind of going, whoa, didn't realise this was going to happen. Then you had a, a grown man walk around the corner and he's bawling his eyes out, talking to you and you're going, you all right, what's, what's wrong? And he's like... Look, my son passed away last year, 27, overdosed, and he um, he was having troubles with his wife because of that, and the book has shown a bit of light in, in his life. So little stories like that, um, even to getting sent pictures of actual kids on buses reading the book, it's been crazy, like, you know. I actually I went up to Dundalk today to get a dog, <laughs> to get a pup. Uh, me and my girlfriend got a dog, and we had one of our friend's kids, we brought, brought her along and she's in the back and she says, there was very inappropriate words in that book, you know that, don't you? And I says, yeah, but it's okay to read them, but you're just not allowed to say them. <laughs> and uh, well, she said, well, one of them is scumbag and I don't like that <laughs> word. And I was like, okay, but just don't be telling your man that you got it in the book. So it's great that it's, it had, it, it, it's touched the wider audience and that's initially why I wanted to do the book. I, I suppose when I start speaking about drug addiction and my brother's issues in 2015. Uh, it was way off my shoulders and there was a lot of people that I suppose needed to hear somebody that would have some sort of a profile speak about that this this is not a dirty secret, it shouldn't be. And there was a lot of, I suppose, from that, uh, there was a lot of people that were asking me to go and, and speak in, uh, whether that was youth clubs, charities, and, 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 and I suppose I got a bit of a kick out of it. I actually... It was one of them light bulb moments where I went, Jesus, I actually like doing this. I can see the energy that I'm giving people about, you know, from speaking about these issues that I have and, and the adversity I've had in my life. And unfortunately, I was actually getting to the stage where I was being, I was being asked to go and meet certain people to help them and just to, 
I'm not a psychologist, I'm, I haven't studied addiction, but I, I certainly know that I'm an expert in, in having a, a family member, an addict. So I was just hoping to, that I could put structure in people's lives um, and to keep them a little bit happier. But I got to the stage where I couldn't get around to speak to everybody and I was going to train and pissed off. I was actually driving to train and, and you know, um, really feeling negative that I missed, say, a talk going to a school or something like that. And it, it had an impact in my training. So, I spoke to a couple of people and that's when I set up the charity. They, they basically said, look, I funnel all this into a charity and to get the story out, why not use the book to get the story out so you can, you, you don't have to be a bit pissed off about not trying to help people. Yeah, I suppose like the power, the power of, of a book is that, you know, it can travel to anywhere and I'm sure you're, if it was on Twitter or Facebook, you've got the pictures of it popping up in places you maybe never thought it would travel to. From your own experience, what was it like to, to sit down and start kind of joining up dots from your own, if it's your own past, different experiences? How did you find that experience of putting all together into that kind of one publication? Because obviously it takes a bit of time and a bit of effort. The book doesn't just pop up overnight. How did you enjoy, or I suppose, yeah, what, what did you take from that experience? Well, I suppose the big thing was that I had spoke about my brother's issue since 2015 and the story was starting to dilute a little bit and the message probably wasn't getting out there as strong as it was initially so um, I wanted to put everything in this book I didn't want to hide anything I wanted to put just wanted a, an honest book that people had essentially come up to you and go Jesus I didn't think you'd put all that in it like so I wanted to put everything out on the table and that was quite difficult because um, when I was sitting out with Niall Kelly who was the ghostwriter there was times where he was like, and is there a little bit more there you're not telling me? Like, you know, so, it, it, but I suppose the only, the only difficult part of it for me was being a current player, playing still, um, and being a Dublin player, in fact, because there's not many Dublin players that do books, you know, so that was the, that was the difficult part. But when players, uh, sorry, when, when I spoke to certain players and certain people, you know, connected in the Dublin GA circle, they could see the benefit of this book, that it's not a normal sports book, that it was going to have an impact on people's lives. And that if I did it now, it would impact more people um, rather than when I finished my career. So that was the only difficult part of it. Uh, we sat down with Niall Kelly and we spoke about the, the structure of it. I wanted to first call the book Halftime Talk, which is the name of the charity. But then I was actually driving down to a match in the league last year and I was reading a book called The Green Platform by Declan Coyle's brilliant book. You must read it if you, if you haven't already. Um, and in that book, the power of choice was was in, in, in a paragraph, and I went, whoa, that's it. And um, funnily enough, I met Declan Coyle a couple of weeks after that, and he says to me, Billy, you have to write a book. I says, oh, sure, I'll see. And at that stage, I'd already said I was going to write a book with, with, a, with a publishing company. And he says, you have to call it a choice. And I'm looking at him going, what the hell is going on here? This <laughs> and I, I just said, oh, no, I'll see. Because I didn't want to, I, I, I purposely threatened Gill Books and Eason's. I said, listen, if this gets out while the championship is still on, yeah. I'm pulling this straight away. I don't want it to impact on, on any of the lads' performances. I suppose for most people here and I suppose for, for the general public, everyone would know you from, from your football career, from your success on the pitch with Dublin. Um, I suppose when I when it first popped up, I remember seeing a picture on Twitter. I think it was like Philip Bans in a book, and I was like, "That doesn't normally happen." And I suppose, but it became very obvious very quickly that it wasn't going to be your standard sports book. And then kind of maybe try and explain where that real, I suppose, 
where the logic came from behind that and why you were so keen to do a, a really different book. And I think that's why it's kind of taken on and had the success it has is because certainly when I read it, you know, it, it feels different. There's a, even the layout's different. It's, you've got your, it's, you're, you're, you're in straight away for your prologue, your first half, half time. Like everything about it, I just felt was different to the norm. Um, and maybe just explain kind of your thought process and feelings a little bit more on that. Well, initially I was asked by three different companies to do a sports book mm-hmm. and I basically sat down with them and they said, and I was hoping somebody would come to me and say something like something different. This book would be more so about what's happened in your life, not so much about football. And after three com- three publishing companies coming to me, the fourth one actually came and said, I don't give a shit about your football. <laughs> and that was Colin Nagel, and he came to me from Gill Books, and he says to Philly, I, I've done Jim McGuinness's book. And he said, just read it. And I read Jim McGuinness's book, and I was blown away, um, because I actually thought his book was going to be about managing and playing, and, and it was more so about his two brothers and stuff like that. So it was amazing for me, and I was like, that's it. You get it. Like, um, So that was the first part, to get a company that, a publishing company that understood what I wanted to do and what, what, what was the target. Then I sat down and I said, with Noel and I said, right, okay, let's construct the force, let's, let's put a framework around this. So I said, we're calling it the choice and I want to break it down into choices between the first half, half time is when John passed and then the, the choices of what I made and what he made, uh, sorry, what I made in the second half. Um, and that's how we, and I just, I just said, look, let's do a prelogue and a prologue about um, just just to drag somebody into the book, like you know, because I didn't, I wasn't a big reader. I'd go on a holiday, and that's the only time I'd read a book, sitting at the pool, like. But I wouldn't read a book throughout the year. So, for me, I said to myself, if I'm going to read this book, I really want people to take it, take something from it, take a little gem from it, a little learning, and and so that, that's what people remember it for. You know that I actually learned something from that book, and it wasn't just about his story. Um, so that's that's how we constructed it, and and. I don't know how he done it so well. He done it brilliantly, like, you know. Um, I actually, his first draft, I said to him, it has to be a bit, the details have to be a little bit more. So he said, what, what do you mean? I said, I want to talk about the smell of the banisters in Ballymun. I want to talk about in the summertime when we didn't have a beach, we had a field, and we all went to a hot presses, and we took the sheets out of hot presses, and we'd put them on a little hill, and that would be our beach. And you could walk up behind Ballymun and you'd have everybody on the, on, on the fields with raid. It was magical, look, you know. That was the way, that's the way I wanted the book to champion Ballymun. Yeah. And he he done it brilliantly. Like, he really did grab all my thoughts and stick them on paper. I think, like, the, the Ballymun angle of the book was a strand. I, I really, really enjoyed when I was reading it. Um, and it was like, there was a couple of different things that jumped out and it was the fine detail of it and it was really describing your own, like that experience in a very authentic way. And actually, I took a quote out from it when I was reading it because um, it was something that really, really struck me and I might just call it out to you just to see and maybe you could explain your thinking a little bit, but cause I think over the course of this process of the work that you've done and, and champion, I think you've become an, like a, an ambassador for the GA in general. You've become a huge advocate for Dublin, but you've also become a really, really strong advocate for the area you're from and Ballymun, and you spoke about it with great pride. And that line that struck me was that you said that somewhere along the way, people stopped seeing Ballymun as a place and started seeing it as a stereotype. And it just really, really struck me, and it made me just kind of pause for a minute and made me think about a few things. You might just elaborate on that for people here, because I think a lot of people will relate to that in some way. I suppose it's it's quite difficult to explain, like... Mm. Um, 
because I understand why there is a stereotype on, on Ballymun, you know. Let's say, for example, Ballymun has been, since we've knocked down all the flats, I think, I think initially people thought when we knock down the flats, we're going to get rid of the stereotype and the stigma, and it's, it's not the case, because all it takes is one bad thing, and unfortunately, that, that's, that screws the whole lot up. For example, it, it could take someone getting shot, or someone um, caught with drugs, little things like this, and, and it's not just Ballymun, it happens everywhere, because it's just so simple for a young, a young kid to, to get 4,000 euro for, for moving something across the road, to going out and getting a job nowadays, you know, it's so difficult. But um, for me, growing up in Ballymun, it's it's like it was fine. Like it wasn't, I wasn't poor. I, I don't, I don't go in and talk about Ballymun as if it's the it's the sad story and and I'm brilliant that I came out. It's not that. Like Ballymun was an amazing place for me. It was a gift, um, and in a gift in a way that it's it's shaped me who I am today. And that's why I'll always. When someone says to me, "Tell me about yourself," I'll always start with Ballymore because that's that's what that's what's initially shaped me. So, it's um, it's quite difficult at times um, when you hear people speak bad about it. But I can understand the, the, the why there's a negative stigma around it. Like you know, um, and we just have to keep battling. We just have to keep championing it. We just have to keep fighting. Um, there's a lot of things that are going on in Ballymun that are really good. There's a lot of good people coming out of Ballymun, and we just have to keep highlighting that. Um, but unfortunately, as public, we love hearing. Unfortunately, we love hearing negative stories. Um, you know, when we get up out of bed and we we read the paper, it's the negative stories we love reading. Why? Because essentially, it makes us feel good when we see other other people feeling bad. Um, so it's a whole kind of cycle that it's going to be very hard to break. But for me, um, it's one of them things that I can't control people's opinions. I don't plan on doing it. Um, I'm planning on being who I am. And if that has an impact on my area, then that's great. Like reading, reading the stuff about your childhood in Ballymun, like, it actually it made me, it brought back a very clear memory for me, which is kind of, it was a strange one in that. So part of the book, you were kind of, you referenced the towers and how sort of people saw that as a symbol of kind of the issues and the stereotypes. It was funny if I, I remember, like, I, I, would, I stayed in the towers a couple of times when I was younger, so I played with Belvedere FC for soccer, so I would have grew up in Dublin. What and floor did you stay on? I, I can't remember, it was about middle to upwards now. Ah, you're a posh <laughs> <laughs> you stay, The higher up your luxury apartment. But it was funny, because <laughs> it would have... It actually brought back a memory to me, so I was staying with one of my teammates off the team because my parents were away, and we had a match at the weekend, so it was like, I got on with your man really well, it was grand staying. I was young, I didn't think anything about it. It wasn't, it wasn't any bothering me. And I remember we were, up and we were playing sort of football and won like the hall bit, so like the front door was basically the goal, so I was the keeper, so there wasn't many goals scored. If I wasn't keeping the clean sheet with a door frame, I was struggling. But I remember back into school the next week, and like, I was, people were how are you at the weekend? I said that, and like, it was like, oh, you what? Like, you're where? Like, and I was like, you know what? Absolute shock and horror. And like, but for me, even, because I was thinking about like, there was just a couple of kids running around playing football. Like, did I see some things that I might not saw on the road I was on? I did. But there was still, like, just families there living their lives, growing, rearing kids still. Like, it was just, I suppose that stereotype again, like, did that ever, through this process, did it ever frustrate you, have feelings if you kind of have to champion that and, and, and push back against that? Yeah, there was times definitely where um, there was definitely resistance. That Looking back now, it was pointless, like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I actually played for Belvedere as well, and I remember a kid uh, from Dunica, Dunica, no, actually from, 
he was from the flats in town. I remember him saying to me, slagging me, saying Ballymun floorboards and all this. And I'm looking at him going, you're from town in the flats, like, you know. Um, but you, you'd get that a lot. And, and again, it's just one of them things that made kids from Ballymun a little bit stronger, a little bit thicker, like, you know. In, in, I'm not saying thicker and stupid, but <laughs> thicker in that, like, you know, it, it built that... It built that armory up a little bit. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there's the, but there was, no matter what, when I look back, no matter how much resistance there was, I, I just think um, it's always going to be there and it's, it's, it's just something that you can't get rid of. I, it, I, I don't have the answer of how it's going to change. I really don't. Because I can keep trying to make Ballymun the, the, the great community it is. And then you have these drug dealers that are doing it in every community are just feeding off these young people. And then the media feed off that, and all of a sudden, you're back to square one. Like there's, for example, there was a, there was a fella shot in a garage in Kulak. The media put up Ballymun. Mm. And then all of a sudden, you're going, oh, not again. What do I have to do? What do we have to do here to change? So it's a, you're nearly banging your head off the wall a lot of the time. Yeah, like, and while being like while being very honest about that, and like you're very passionate about Ballymore and, and the love you have to place, and like those memories, like the bed sheets and all, like because you know, everyone kind of relates to them in different ways, and you kind of get a laugh, and it brought me back, probably brought the reader back to their childhood in, in loads of different ways. But I suppose the other thing you did, you did is like, you didn't sugarcoat the issues also that were there, and I suppose like, you would have been very honest and open about drugs and addiction, and like a, a huge part of the book is is referenced earlier on is around is is around your brother and, and is around that addiction aspect. And like, what was it difficult to I suppose delve back into your memory and, and try and remember? Because you're obviously remembering some good things and putting it in, but you're also remembering bad things as well. And was that a, was that ever a struggle for you trying to keep that balance right? Yeah, like anybody that knows me will tell you that I've a really poor memory. I'm really bad, like you know. Um, but when I spoke to one of the management team and I said to him, "Look, I'm thinking of doing this," and he said, "Look." have you ever grieved about your brother's loss, you know? And I said, I think I have. And the way I thought I, I grieved was actually, I walked the month that he passed. I said to my mum and dad, I said, look, I want to I pay for the funeral. Mm. And they said, no, you're not. He says, we'll all, we'll all pay for it, right? And, and I just said, no, I just want it, like, you know? Because I tell you why, John used to, even when he was really heavily on heroin, he used to, when he got his wages, bring me into town and get me jerseys every every time, every time. So, and he never, now even like he always walked through his addiction until he went over to London, and that's where he kind of struggled then to get to get jobs and stuff. Um, so he always was the one that gave me money, and and I never forget that even in his worst days, he'd still be generous with his money. So I I said to my parents, no, just just let me deal with like you know, but they didn't let me in anyway. So. I walked for a month and I, I walked like from six in the morning till about 10 o'clock at night doing personal training and I saved up 17 grand in a month from doing it. And when I went to pay the viewer, my mom said, no, that's already paid for. I said, you could have told me that. I went to be walking all these hours. So, um, but it was, uh, it was only when I started writing the book and I started uh, speaking to Noel and I started speaking to my family members and, and his friends that I realised what grieving was. You know, we're all sitting around the table talking about the stories and we're laughing one minute, crying the next, angry the, the minute after me, all the emotions coming out in, 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 his, in his all. And I think that's grieving in itself. So 
writing the book for me was something that helped me massively. Um, grave for John, like you know, um, and I'm sure it helped. I'm sure some of the other family members and friends it helped it helped them as well. Yeah, like the I suppose the love you have for your brother and and kind of the relationship you have is it comes across so strongly and so well. And he was very obviously someone that you absolutely idolised growing up, and like you 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 reference that like regularly throughout it. Um, but like the book is was very much for and kind of about him as well, as much as it is about Finn McMahon. Was that is that fair to say? Yeah, the book. Well, I suppose the book was, was for him. Mm. You know, John's name now is more alive than it was when he was alive. You know, he's in books, he's in TV, yeah. he's in charities. That's, that's what it's about for me. It's not, this is not about me whatsoever, although my name is connected to it. Um, and ultimately, it's actually bigger than John as well. Mm. You know, um, John's legacy is being lived through what my actions are. But ultimately um this is just so so much bigger than any individual um the addiction problems that we have in this country is just crazy and mental health which most of them start from like with john i suppose there was a, there was a line within the book and it, it really really struck me um because it was really really powerful and i think a lot of people who have maybe if it's loved ones or siblings going through addiction be it if it's drugs if it's gambling if it's alcohol it was around the line of i suppose you, you said that but in the middle of it all, your frustration with the addiction and with the addict, you kind of forgot about the person behind it and, and just probably just maybe the struggles that they're going through. Was that a difficult thing to kind of to realise and to maybe, dot when it dawned on you that little bit further down the line during this reflection process, is that, is that a tough thing when it dawns on you and, and you, you sort of feel that? Like, the, the big thing about addiction is, right, um, this is, this is I, I don't know if a list of work... Just put your hand up if you have a friend or if, actually tell you what, everybody start with their hands up. Because when you ask this, they won't. Look, it's like, ooh, like put it up. Start with your hands up. And put your hand down, okay? Put your hand down if you have a friend or a family member that's an addict in any addiction. Put it down if you have. If you have, yeah? Does that make sense? So if you have somebody that you know, family member or friend that is is involved with addiction. So we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's about 15 people that don't know somebody that's an, an addict in this room. Or else people got that wrong or explained it wrong. <laughs> right? So most of, these, most of the people in this room have some sort of a connection with, it, with, it, with, an, with an addict, right? Now, there's probably more people in this room that have a connection with a family member or friend that has had cancer, right? An addiction and cancer are very similar. Why? Because it's a waiting game. It's a waiting game, right? And although the addict has a choice to get clean, as a family member of an addict, you're waiting for that knock at the door when the guard goes, comes at the door and says, look, he's either in trouble or she's in trouble or else he's passed or she's passed. And that's the same with cancer. If, if, it's, if you have a terminally ill family member or, fa or friend that has cancer, it's a waiting game. You're just waiting for this to happen, right? So it's quite difficult for people to relate to addicts unless it's directly related to you. Like, uh, like if I didn't have a brother who was an addict, I probably wouldn't give a shit as much as I do. So for those people who don't actually, right now, today in this room, that don't really have a huge impact with addicts because maybe they're not really connected to addicts directly, just think if you if it was if you have somebody that's a cancer victim in your family or friends, that's the exact same thing. 
It's the exact same experience for a family member as an addict. It's a horrible feeling. It's, it's, it's constantly over your head, like, you know. Um, and at the end of the day, a lot of people will say, well, they made the choice. It's, it's, but, but ultimately, you're in, the environment around that person is having a huge impact on them. Like John, at the age of 14, we as a family thought it was about 16. Because you don't really see it. It takes time for the physical parts of addiction, and certainly heroin, to change the person. He was 14 when he was brought into a lift with one of the older guys and two of, the, two of his uh, friends that were the same age, and he was given heroin at 14. I went to a school in Ballymon called Trinity Comprehensive, and I went in their, their um, transition year reading the book at the minute, and I went in after they, wrote, they read the book, and we were just having a chat about it. And a girl came up to me after and said, her brother had passed away um, from drug addiction. And she said to me, everybody here is in a WhatsApp group. And there's a fella every week that puts up a picture of a bag of ecstasy tablets. Does anybody want any? Right? Do you know how much it is for an ecstasy tablet nowadays? I said to her, how much is it? A euro. Cheaper to buy an ecstasy tablet than it is a Mars bar. Isn't that crazy? Like, so your environment has a huge impact. And certainly, growing up John, um, he, he ultimately chose to take the drug, but his environment had, a, had a, an impact on him. And that's happening every day now. Every day this is happening. Constantly around different communities in Dublin. On that, just on that, Philly, because I mean, like, that's after, I'd say that struck a chord with everybody in the room uh, and the power of that example. And like, from the earlier, I suppose everyone in the room probably now is thinking of someone maybe someone in their own life. Um, so there's two questions on it. The first one is, what would you say to someone, so the people in the room here maybe, so if someone's in addiction, you can't always get through to them, like sometimes straight away, sometimes at all. But for the, for the people in the room that can maybe support or try and help, is, is there any advice from the lived experience you have that, to share that could maybe just shed a bit of light or help someone in any, in, in any way? Like? Definitely. Um, the biggest one I would have said was, you know, when, when, you, when you have someone that's related to you um, or a friend that's an addict, it's, a lot of people will show tough love because this is the way the stigma is in society that we, we believe when we walk by someone that's a drug addict in the street, we believe, oh, you're, you're low, don't really want to speak to you, don't even... In fact, a drug addict in the street, right, very few of them are strong enough to actually do anything harmful to you. Right? But that's not saying they don't do bad things. They have to. They get a hit every day. It's 20 euro for the hit. Um, and if you add that up over a year, it's probably about 20, 30,000 euro a year. Now, where are they going to get that? They're homeless and they're jobless. Right? So where are they going to get the money to, to take these drugs? They have to commit crime. Okay? And this little piece of powder is more powerful than love. How do we know that? Because... The family member will always probably throw them out of the house because they're robbing things to feed their habit, right? And the family member will always probably say, if you don't stop this, I'm not going to talk to you ever again, right? And that's the family member using love as a way of being the bargaining tool to get that person off drugs. That drug is more powerful than love, and that's the strongest thing we have as human beings, love, right? So that's, 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 it's ultimately just understanding that this drug is so powerful. It's incredibly powerful, right? For anybody that smokes, right, getting off nicotine is extremely hard. Multiply that by 20. 
the dopamine release that you get when you take heroin is 20 times stronger than, than, than nicotine. So it's incredibly strong. So therefore then, right, ultimately, how do we, how do we get these people off drugs? We can't. It has, has to be their decision. I've spoke to hundreds of recovering addicts and I've said, how did you do it? And ultimately the answer is, I hit rock bottom. Now, what enhances the chances of them getting, going through recovery and actually not slipping is a couple of things. Connection is the first thing. Okay, so if you have a family member or a friend or if you know somebody that's a drug addict, the most important thing is to make them realize that when you decide to come off drugs, we're here to help you. Okay, when you make that decision, and that's the message for young kids as well, by the way. <laughs> the, the message of telling our kids not to take drugs doesn't work. The tortoise overdose rates in Europe. Do you think that message works? No, because we still have addicts. Now, I'm not saying you go and you tell your kids to take drugs, but I'm saying show them what happens. You know, because that's what happened to me. I seen John going on drugs, seen the pain he went through. That's why he didn't take drugs. So you have to, it has to be greater than just don't take drugs, right? So... Ultimately, the big thing is connection. And then we have to give them a way of integrating back into society, right? And at the minute, our policies are destroying that, okay? So when somebody's caught with a personal use of, let's say, heroin, um, they are they're incriminated, so they're incarcerated, okay? So that means then they're mixing in with other people that are addicts, and then they've no way of coming out into society. They're already being imprisoned. They find it very hard to get a job. And we've kind of got an American way of doing things. We kind of stamp people that are making mistakes in life. And we need to look at the other countries that are doing great things, like, let's say, Switzerland are legalizing it. Portugal have decriminalized it. And I'm not saying we should take that and just go run with it, but we should start looking at areas that, that, that are working for other countries. But as a society, we need to start understanding that it's a mental health issue. Why is a mental health issue? Because 80% of um, drug addicts have had uh, childhood mental health issues, right? So that's where it starts from. The drug is the thing to cover it and, and to get rid of the pain. So therefore, we need to be, we need to find a way to connect. We need to, we need to show addicts that there's other people that they know are, are, are actually doing it. So peer guidance is very important. Connection, peer guidance. Um, and then changing the stigma around society. They're the three areas that I would say we need to look at. You know, if we, if we constantly put these people down, they'll constantly stay as addicts. So we have, let's say now, we have the injection clinic, clinics coming in. Great idea. Why? Because it takes the drugs off the street, changes the stigma, the negative stigma. And now we can actually get these people in an area where we can focus on them. We can actually now get them um, into these clinics and say, okay, you're still taking drugs. Just remember, when, when you feel you want to come off them, we'll help you here. Um, and, and other people, like I've, I've a lot of recovering addicts in my gym, in, in my gyms, and they're unbelievable people. Like They're so driven. Why? They got a second chance in life. So I would hope in time that a lot of companies won't be afraid to hire people that were addicts. Um, I constantly get people donating money to the charity and... And I'm like, why did you, like, I got a, a CEO do, donated uh, money to a charity and, and I said to him, geez, that's a big amount, why did you do that? And he says, I was an addict. I said, Jesus, if you told people, how much would that help other people coming out? But I understand he can't, well, he feels he can't. So we're hoping that the, the, there's certain people in, in the political world at the minute 
uh, open to change because it's what we need. Um, but ultimately, getting back to the, I waffled on a little bit there, sorry. Getting back to the three things, connection, prayer guidance, and then we need to change the stigma in society. No, I think there's there's just an awful there was there's a lot in there and if like that wasn't waffling by any means. If that's your definition of waffling now, I'm in serious trouble. But um like you, within within the middle of that Philly, you kinda of, you reference directly kind of the saying no to drugs just doesn't work. Um and I suppose the one of the answers or possible ways that is kind of creating conversations, is having open and frank discussions around it. I think you've helped greatly already in that process and just being frank and honest about it. And one of the things within the book actually that really I had to, I just had to pause and stop reading was around when you mentioned there the first time John was presented in front of him and they were offered H, wasn't it? And the lads kind of, I was like, what's that? And they weren't sure. And like one of the lads said it was liquid hash. Is that, is my memory right on that? It just really struck me kind of the, I suppose, the, how naive as well and uneducated young people can be. And then also the wrong people can manipulate that innocence as well. So is there an onus on us to try and have open discussions and try and educate our young people on that? Yeah, I think from, from an addiction point of view and a mental health point of view, um, it's very important because it is an easier way out if you have got uh, mental health issues. It is a re it's much easier to take drugs to, to get rid of it rather than it is to talk. That's, that, that's, that's, a, that's certainly somewhere that I think we need to start with, that talking is more powerful than drugs. So if we can get to that stage where we break down the armory um, and people's changing negative thoughts to positive thoughts, I think that's going to help certainly at a younger age. Um, one of the big issues, I think, starts from a very young age. It starts from par parenting, like, you know. Um, it, it actually starts with how we actually speak to our kids. And it's how, it's little things that you wouldn't even, like, we all, like, I'm not a parent actually at the minute, so it's very hard for people to listen to me talk about parenting. <laughs> but, but for me, um, there's, little, there's little tricks that we're missing out on, like, you know. Um, I talk all the time about changing our thoughts, the, cho the power of choice, changing our negative thoughts, the positive thoughts. Um, and I always talk, and I use the analogy of a kid, a parent coming in and um, having a box of eggs or having shopping and there's a box of eggs and the, the kid thinks is doing a good chore by asking the parent, can I put them in the fridge for you? The parent will say, what? No, you'll break them. And the kid's going, hold on, in my head, I thought it was doing something positive, but now it's negative. Or the parent might say, yeah, take the eggs. And then what will the parent say as soon as the kid takes the eggs? Don't break the eggs. The kid breaks the eggs, the parent gives out to them. So all of these little things, we're building up this negative subconscious mind, right? So 70% of our thoughts are, are subconscious controlled, okay? So um, we have 50,000 thoughts a day. Some people say between 50 and 60,000 a day, and 80% of them are negative. But it starts from when you were a kid. And that's where we need to look at the curriculum and skills. We need to look at um, the self-esteem that we have uh, from a very young age. So 96% of kids from the ages of not baby, infancy to six, have high self-esteem. Then from, from there to, to 16, 98% will have low self-esteem. Right? So what does that cost? Huge problems, huge problems in mental health, huge problems in addiction. So it's all interlinked. interlinked. You have mental health issues, you have addiction issues, you have homelessness issues, right? So it's a full circle. Um, I think it's very important that we 
we've got kind of two nearly categories in mental health. You have the people that are adults now who have mental health issues, which we need to really give support and help. But we also have a prevention point of view that we need to start targeting. And I think that starts with school, it starts with parenting, coaching. All has a huge influence in shaping a kid's life. Yeah, like, I know you said you're, like, you're not a parent yet, but you are me to go get a dog this morning, so you're on the... <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, he you're heading in that direction. <laughs> um, but no, all joking aside, like, I think, while you, while you may not be a parent, I think, obviously, you can relate greatly to, say, young people and to teenagers. They also look up to you and will be listening to what you're saying, whereas maybe sometimes if mum or dad tries to say it, to say, like, here, would you like, have a day off? I'm sick of listening to this, and they walk out the door. I just kind of like, there's, there's, there's people in the room here, but like, I suppose this would be going out afterwards in terms of like on iTunes and all that stuff, for someone maybe in their adolescence or kind of in that age group, and they're seeing, within their social circle now, maybe drugs are starting to come in and starting to present itself. Um, and I said, the, the option of just saying don't take them and pretend they're not there is not the, is not the answer here. For that kind of younger person, let's imagine a 15, 16 year old that might be listening to this on their way to school or whatever. What would you say to someone like that where drugs are starting to come in front of them? Would you have any advice for that person? Yeah, like, the, the big thing would be that we need to make them understand that... See, it's quite hard at that age, right? Because the time to catch them was before that, when they've, before that age, because when they've got to that stage, you're kind of saying to them, the only way, actually, that would work with, them, with, with the kids that age is actually showing them pain, you know? Um, I think it, there's, a, there's a lot of skills that would bring kids to Mount Joy and stuff like that on tours. I think that's very good. I think that's very important. Um, because there's a lot of people I work with. The, I work in Mount Joy. I work in the West Wing, reintegrating prisoners into society. And um, if kids could hear their stories, it's the, it's not different at all. It's the exact same. They start off smoking, then they go on to hash, and they go on to ecstasy, and then they start doing. And they're the kids that you know. These people, these prisoners, and they're, they're, they're the people that always say, "Oh, I'll take this once, and I won't do it again." And these kids are going to do the same thing. You know, the ones that are really going to go heavily into drugs, they will go through the exact same cycle. So it's shown them that bit of pain. I think that's very important. And that's, that's all I have so far. Like, and I'm, I'm looking into it a little bit more um, for that age group, but it's quite difficult. It really is. And you're dead right. It is, it, it's, it's one of them things where they won't listen to the parent, they won't listen to the teacher, um, and they certainly won't listen to a guard. So it's, it's an age group that they have, um, they, have the, they have a kind of a barrier up against people that, that have authority, like, you know, in their lives. So I would have a lot more people that would listen to me than listen to their parents. Like, you know, I have a guy there that I, I meet quite regularly. And um, unfortunately, his, he's in the book, actually. Unfortunately, his brother died when he was younger. And then his, his mother commits suicide because of it. And only a couple of weeks ago, he nearly, he nearly jumped off the, the bridge in the lift, you look, you know? Um, and he's, he's got an amazing story, and that's what I'm trying to... These kids have to understand death before they understand life, unfortunately, you know? Um, that's, that's the difficult thing, that they have to understand the most important time in life is not the start or the end, it's what's in between it. And I think if we, uh, sometimes it's kind of touchy to be talking about that, but if they can, that's the first part I start with. You know, I'm sitting there with a kid, I'll talk about that straight away. 
Um, why? Because it just brings life into perspective a little bit more, you know? Say to them, you know, like, what, what do you think people will think of you when you're gone? You know, and some people, they'll say automatically, I don't care, or they won't think much about me. And then I just, I just talk to them about stories about, you know, the family members that have said to me about them, like, you know, so before I met that guy, I would have spoke to his brother, his sister, his brother, and his, his father. And I would have had stories ready for him. And I said, did you know about these things? Do you know how they feel about you in terms of this stuff? So, and that's not, I think Brezzy said it perfectly, like it's, these are, these are things, addiction, mental health, you don't just get rid of them when you feel happy, like they're there for the rest of your life, like, you know, they really are. Um, but I do think it starts uh, with little choices, the power of choice. It's being aware of how you're feeling, being aware of your self-talk, and then it's also then being educated enough to understand that you have the choice to go, hold on, this is negative, change that. I want to feel better. So I don't have an answer for you. I really, I really don't. That age group is very difficult, and that's the age group that we target with my charity. We'll, we'll go into communities. We'll engage in the community. we look at the youth clubs, and then basically we're, we're trying to educate these young, inspire and educate these young people by using a community champion. One of the, I suppose, at the, the halftime section of your book, and I think it's very, like, John's death, ultimately, it, it shakes you to your core, and it makes you ask questions of yourself, and kind of, you look within. Um, and there, there was a kind of, there was a reference around kind of, you know, and we all probably guilty of it, you know, we're coasting in our life, and you just feel, that's grand. Because of this experience and that pain, it kind of makes you look a bit deeper in yourself, and I was actually, it kind of jumped out at me that the first three words of the, like, the first half within the book was, who are you? Um... And I suppose I'm, after, I'm listening to you talking here so, so intelligently, so passionately, uh, so insightful around difficult topics to discuss. I suppose, is the Finnick man sitting here, does he have a better sense of who he is now maybe than he's ever had before? Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, and, and who I am, I suppose it's not really about who I am, it's, it's what I'm here to do. You know, that way I got to the stage where um, I, I've understood that I've got a huge kick out of helping people. And that's probably more powerful than fame, than all oil medals, than money. It's, it's, it's an incredible position to be in when you get to the stage in life where you believe that the reason you're here on this planet is to help people. It's, and it's like, we're Irish, aren't we? Like, so... That sounds very cheesy, you know, but uh, that's ultimately what I'm here to do. I, I, I'll get a much bigger kick out of helping people than I would um, having been a millionaire or, or having 20 All-Ireland medals. That's no disrespect to anybody that hasn't got any. But yeah. I, I just, I, I've got to a stage where, and, and, and in fairness, I'm only here because sport has actually given me a platform to do that, you know, so I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful from, for... Uh, being from Ballymun, I'm so grateful, although it's a negative thing that my brother John had an addiction that shaped me who I am today. So I'm just using all of these uh, negative things, events, as, an, as opportunities. And um, I think that's very important in life that we realise that like, we all wake up every morning. When we were in the Paleotic times, we woke, we, we, we woke up and we, we went hunting for food. Now we go hunting for money, like, you know. 
but you'll get to a stage in life where there's a there's you know money you'll get to a cap where it's no matter how much more you make it's not going to make any more any give you any more happiness so i've got to that stage i feel at a young stage in my life and um and I'm, I'm trying to instill that into other young people it's not about what you have it's it's what you do with what you have like um for me and anyway so i'm hoping that i'll have another year or two left to have that continue on and then who knows after that what's the next platform that helps me is it is a business i don't know because my business helps me, helps me achieve that every day i've done it since i'm 17 i'm helping people in gyms i help people in my field company and then my charity so I'm also building for after my football career and what platform's next. I suppose, like, around that time, you you kind of throw yourself into your work, and you mentioned the book, it's almost kind of like a manic stage where you're just, you're, you're working, you're fly-up playing football, and it's kind of just, I think there was a kind of reference around keeping yourself out of your head, and I suppose that's kind of the reaction, and we all relate to that in different ways, when something bad happens or when something, it's it just get get busy, like, but there is, there does come a time where you kind of, and it's, it's really powerful to hear someone like yourself, such a prominent sports star, to be able to talk about pain, to be able to talk about vulnerability. Um, I suppose, like, they're, they're kind of, diff, they are difficult lessons to learn, but I suppose the real kind of, the real positive thing is to see how you've taken that now, and kind of a, you first you have to accept it, but then channel it in the right way. And I suppose you've gone from maybe being, I think, been from, from being reactive to proactive in your life. And how has that shift been in terms of your dynamic now, your energy, who you are, who you are and what you do? Like, it's, how has that been? I'm still not, like, I'm not sitting up here, like, Ned Flanders thinking I'm perfect, like, you know? <laughs> but I still have, like... My dad's very sick at the minute, and, and I thought after John's passing that I was, was very proactive, but I wasn't, like, you know. And it, it kind of comes behind, it kicks you up the arse every so often, you know. It's not something that you're proactive for the rest of your life. But for me, um, it's very simple. It's very simple. Do you give energy or do you take it away? That's what it comes down to in life. Um, and when you help somebody, that's, you're giving them a huge amount of energy. Um, so for me, I've been, year after year, I'd write my goals down like a lot of people. But for me, it's changed completely to, like, I have a, a, a thing called a default diary. And it's basically, it's, it's like a roster, from Monday, to, Monday to Sunday, and the time's from 6 in the morning to, let's say, 11 at night. And I'll have different colours. So say, for example, I'll have the different components of my life, sport, relationships, um, business, and hobbies, right? So let's say sport, I'll put in blue, and I'll put the times in blue when I'm training due that week, or yellow could be me business, me, the, the business. I put yellow wherever I'm working. And then I step back and I go, right, hold on a second, where am I spending most time each week? And for years, it would have been business and sport, and I would have neglected relations, relationships in my life and for me I've uh, you know I've been asked a lot of times like this year what will you be doing to make yourself a better footballer and for me it's actually spending more time with my loved ones it's not kicking the ball a thousand times off the wall like it's me actually feeling good outside of sport so when I'm in sport I feel much better so um I've got to a stage now and I'm very very fortunate um that I've been I have a career where I can now wake up in the morning time and actually say 
all right, what time am I going down to see my dad? What time am I going to go down and see my mama? Um, instead of waking up and going, right, I'm working nine to five, I'll actually get up and I'll walk around them. I'll walk around um, loved ones. And, and again, I'm very grateful for having a company and being able to do that. And, but I just, I just shift my hours around that. Like, I still walk eight hours a day. And I just walk around that. I walk around them. And that's the big thing about your career, what you're doing in your life. Have you got a job where if something bad happens to a loved one that you can actually ha be flexible enough to do something like that? Because ultimately, I'd, like, I could make millions from my gyms. But if my dad passed the next couple of months mm. and I didn't spend enough time, I'd have so much more regrets to that than I would the amount of money that I didn't make from it. You know, so um, that's that's where I'm very, very uh, lucky that I can do that in, in my career. Like you know, the like the color code example you use. I remember we we did a breakfast morning a couple about a year or two ago, and we're sitting there. There was three or four at the top, and Philly's going through this color coded schedule, and all. I'm sitting there. I can, can barely even read my own handwriting, and I was like, I'm going to try that. That is, he's on the money here. Went home, ended up with blue and marker all over my hands. I was like, that's not going to work for me. But like I was really struck that day of, of how the clarity you had on those pillars, because I suppose what happens, so sports stars in particular, and I know anyone who has listened to discussion beforehand would get, so it ends up being an identity issue that leads to a mental health problem. But having that clarity on the pillars of my life, the good things that I need, and that I need to keep check on that, I suppose, it, has that been difficult to find that? And in terms of just obviously... For someone, for people here that listen, maybe just think you've done a book and have a few gyms, you might even give someone a sense of what your work life involves and the couple of things that you are involved in and just throw them out there. I, I started in the, the fitness industry when I was 17 because I was broke and I had a car loan and I trained a few women in an attic space in Ballyman Kickhams. And then that blew, at, again, it was an opportunity. I was very lucky that, that at that stage, the country... Uh, obesity epidemic was getting bigger and bigger and um, I went from four women to four gyms like that and I was making a lot of money I hadn't got a clue anything about business never studied business even in school um, and I made a lot of mistakes along the way and I started getting business coaching um, because I actually wasn't a really I wasn't an, an academic person um, although I went to done a degree in DCU um, I was more of a, of a, a more of practical learner, and so for me it started there. That's where it initially started, and f for me um, throughout the years, then I was kind of always looking to do something, create something that was bigger than an individual that I could pass down or sell on, um, and and that's when I when I set up Fifth Field. So. Um, but it was funny because there were all these little things and a couple of different other projects that I've done, uh, different um, healthcare products that I've franchised and stuff like that and got licenses on. And, but they were all around the fitness market and it was funny, they're all around, the, 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 the companies and the products are all around helping people. Like, so only, only recently I realised, geez, this is where I'm going, this is, where I, this is what I want to do, like, you know. Um, so... Yeah, I would have started with the, the, the four women, four gyms, cut back then to changing my business model from having gyms and sports clubs to actually going and saying, right, I want to target 
the medium to the medium to large size uh, fitness market. I worked in Ben Dunn for a long Ben Dunn for a long time. I was asked to do an interview last week with him um, and two others, and I was raging. I missed the email, and and, I, and the reason why I was raging was because I absolutely hated working for him. <laughs> so I was I was about to slay him on TV or on the radio, um, and it wasn't that in person. It was just. He's doing everything the total opposite to what I do nowadays, you know. So he helped me massively to do what I'm doing. Um, so we actually opened me first large gym this year. I opened it last week, eight thousand square foot gym in Fingless, just off the M50 exit. Join, give you all a deal if you go this week. Um, <laughs> you know, discount code yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> There's flowers in your chairs. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that's took ten, that's ten years in the making. Like, so I'm very proud of that um, and very. Again, thankful for the, the staff that I have that allows me to achieve something really big for me in my life. Um, and it's not easy financially to get to that stage unless you have people coming in, handing you money and losing equity because of it, investment-wise. So um, so everything is going good in business. Um, that, that takes up a good part of my day. As I said, the family then come in for us, then, then it's business and then football around that. And we're very lucky, Jim Gavin, uh, is very supportive in in what we do in terms of business because it's extremely hard to own your own business and to actually market your own business as a as a footballer because I can't actually go and do an ad about me GMB to say I can't go and do an ad without pissing a few people off in the team. I'm not Conor McGregor. I can't say what I want, <laughs> you know. So uh, it's quite difficult as a GA player to do that, but also you get to support from the from the management as well. Like on that on that note of support, I suppose some of the sometimes it's our perception of sports people, and I think it was referenced during the panel before us is that you're know, kind of a sports person. He's deadly, she's deadly. Look at him; he can do all that. But sure, I couldn't do that. Look at all he's doing. Like he's just, he's a strong, like he's intelligent with all that stuff. But I think you'd be quite open to say that like your journey and your growth, you've depended on support and help of different people uh, and reaching out and getting that support and having different conversations. Is that fair to say? Because I think sometimes people just think, ah, sure, like he's, he plays football, sure, he gets off, he's, I mean, he can do whatever he wants. Like, but you, like, you've needed help along the way, you've needed support, you've needed to have that network around you and to build a network because the network just doesn't pop up because you're feeling like, man, you might be able to find it easier than maybe some people, but you still have to go and build it, do you? Yeah, definitely. Your network is your, is your strongest asset, like, you know. Um, and I'm a strong believer if, if there's certain things you want from people, you have to give it first. So it's like, I call it the boomerang, boomerang effect. You know, if, if eventually you want support around you, forever that is in life, you have to give it first. Um, so that, that for me has worked really well for me over the years. And again, you know, there is that side that because you're a GA player um, that you do get support a, a lot easier. But it's just about being good as a person that, that you'll build a network from, you know. Like I've a, I have a, a really strong... Uh, charity board, 13 highly successful business people, like much more successful than I would ever be in business um, because they're driven for that reason. I'm driven differently. Like um, I don't really care about how much money I make. I just, I'm happy with what I'm doing. And if it makes loads of money, it's a byproduct of it, great. But these people are brilliant. Like they're amazing because, and then there's a woman that actually got all of these people for me. And she's nothing to do with, like, she, she never played for Dublin. Um, but because she's such a good person, these people, she's going to them and saying, look, it, 
this charity is going to help so many young adults. This is what it's going to do. This is a fella that's involved in setting it up. Would you be interested? And they're looking at her and saying, you're reputable. Mm. So that, so, and it's just because she's a good person. So if we just, if you realise that, go back to that thing. If, if anybody here is looking to build a network, no matter who you are, the most important thing is give energy. Give energy to people because they'll want to be around you. They'll want to give something back to you. Do you want to talk to us just for a couple of minutes specifically about the charity? Because I know it's kind of a, it's, it's a big part to your, your plans 2018, um, where you're coming from. And I know a lot of this process has been around evolving from there's Phil McMahon, the football over there, and to growing into yourself and to sort of having that purpose outside the game. And keeping, I know you're keeping the balance right between the two of them and it's not always easy, but do you want to talk to us a little bit about that charity and give people a kind of a, a stronger sense of what that work is and what you hope to do with it? Yeah, so t- 2012, just after John passed away, I had met a guy in Ballymun who was doing, he was involved with a, one of the social programs of Ballymun and he brought me into the secondary school to be like a Dragon's Den type thing and, and, and I spoke to the kids and, and I said, look, I actually really enjoyed this. Can, can we do something more? But not for this age group. The kids that probably are struggling, that are not in school or that are unemployed. And he came back to me about, four or five months later after that and said, Philly, can I take you up on what you were talking about? And I said, yeah, let's do it. Like, so we did a FeedTech Level 4 fitness course for 18 to 24-year-olds that were on the live register for longer than a year. And they had to be from Ballymun and Whitehall. Um, so any, the stats are shown. Anybody from 18 to 24 that are on the live register for longer than a year, they're probably going to be on it for longer than two years right so they were perfect and what we did was we said right okay um let's we went to the department of social protection and they said right we gave them our criteria and they said right there's about 500 people in them areas that meet your criteria and we said right send a mail shout out send a mail shout out send letters out and uh 50 came back Right, so that's how hard it is. Fifty came back. The social programs are really difficult. So when the fifty came back, we said, right, we we'll take twenty for interviews. Sorry, we we'll take thirty for interviews, and we took the thirty people in, and we picked the twenty worst interviews. Right, interviewees. Right, why? Because they're the ones that are always going to struggle. They're the ones that were never going to break the cycle. They weren't going to develop their careers, and these are people that struggled with bereavement that um, struggled with the law, struggled with drugs, struggled with school, um, family issues at home. And they were perfect for us. They wouldn't have been perfect for anybody that was taking an employer, but they were perfect for us. And that was a huge success, that program, because when they first came in, even some of them struggled with social anxiety. They, wouldn't, they weren't even talking. They were just sitting there in a the group. And in a matter of about six or seven weeks, we had them dancing in front of each other. They were teaching each other, dancing in front of each other, right? One fella who struggled with social anxiety, we had to, we had to slow him down a bit. He, like we were doing a dancing, right? We were doing a warm-up, and we are saying, right, you get points if you throw in a dance move. This fella whips his top off. That's the last thing around. They're like, oh, relax. So it was amazing, like, you know? And there were some people on that, in fairness, that you were never going to change. They were the people that always pop between these social programs and keep the social welfare off their back, and they're just, you're not going to do that for them. 13 of them were very successful in, in their objective was to um, push them on to further education or to get them back into employment and purposeful employment. Not one of these courses where you go, ah, work in a job down the road and you'll be happy. And Take the box. This is, yeah, it's, it's more 
career development. So we just, and it didn't matter if it was in the fitness industry. We only used fitness because we wanted to use the values of fitness that would help them in, in, their, in their basic life. So, so that was a huge success, right? Anybody that knows social programs, 13 people out of 20 to go on to further education and, and employment, it's huge success. So we go to the government the following year and ask for the funding for it. Do you think they give it to us? Jesus Christ, no, they didn't. So we would have saved around the, the government in around 150,000 to 200,000 euro, depending on how long they stayed off the, the, or they were going to stay on the, long, the social welfare for. And yet they couldn't give us 20 grand to continue this on. So uh, I kind of got to the stage where I was pissed off and I said, no, this is not going to stop me. And that's when I went and set up this charity. So I always, charities um, have a lot of volunteers, a lot of really good people. And, and I suppose where I wanted to start off was business people. Why? Because a charity is a business. And we wanted to have all the governance right. We wanted to have all, everything in order before we, we kicked off. So we've got all that boxed off. That's all sorted. And this year, we're going to launch... Uh, we're launching the charity in February. And the plan then is to go into... Using Ballymun as the pilot scheme. Go in and do something similar to what we've done. Use a local champion. <clears throat> so somebody that these people will get out of bed for. And go, Jesus, well, if he's done it, I'm going to do it. Or if she's done it, I'm I'm going to do it. And then go to, we're going to connect them, the dots together. So we're going to go and get funding, whether that's corporate donations, philanthropists, whether that's uh, government funding. And then what we're going to do is we're going to join the dots. We're going to go to the, the local youth uh, organization and say, do you cover this? So we're not actually fighting and competing against other charities or organizations. We're supporting them. And then we're joining the dots together. And we're starting with basic life skills. And we're getting get to a good stage with, with confidence, self-esteem and all that sort of stuff. And then we push them in a direction with a mentoring phase after that. If that works, well, then we're going to replicate in every community in this country and shake the whole country. I suppose, folks, just as a wrap-up, just to say, um, I think that's been a very thought-provoking and powerful conversation. And, and to thank you for your honesty. And i just like to suppose, finish out the conversation just by maybe everyone joining and clapping and for Philly, because I just think that's one of the most insightful uh, and powerful conversations I've been fortunate to be a part of. I really value it. I thank you for your time, and I wish you with every success in 2018 and going forward. So thank you, Philly. I just want to give a massive thank you to Philly McMahon for taking the time out of his busy schedule to sit down for this chat about his life and his book called The Choice. If you want to learn more about him or his charity Halftime Talk, head over to www.halftimetalk.ie. If you want to get in touch with me to give feedback on the podcast or maybe even request a future guest, you can get me at, at AOMDecad on Twitter or head over to www.realtalks.ie. We passionately believe in the importance of meaningful conversations and talking about both the good and bad times in our lives. From Ushin McConville to Brendan Marr and Cora Staunton to Eamon McGee, there's a wide range of discussions within the archive that everybody will relate to in some way. My name is Alan O'Mara and thank you for listening to episode 19 of the Real Talks podcast with Dublin's Philly McMahon.